This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to 2 Corinthians 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 6. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. People get nervous when ministers start talking about money. Recent news, we've heard stories of televangelists attempting to defend their need to raise $50 million for their private jets. That hasn't helped alleviate people's skittishness about ministers talking about money. So let me set you at ease. I have no interest in owning a private jet. Just in case you were wondering. Sadly, stories like these can cause pastors to shy away from talking about money with their congregations. That's unwise as well for a couple of reasons. The first is that so many of our problems, so many of our worries, so many of our difficulties, so many of the complexities of life revolve around money. So to ignore it, to ignore it does a disservice to people. But there's another reason it's unwise to avoid talking about money, and that's because so much of the Bible is about money. There are more than 2,000 verses in the Bible that discuss it. You'd be hard-pressed to find another topic uh, that's given that much attention. So we're a Bible church. If the Bible talks about it, we want to preach on it. We want to teach on it. Picture it this way. Imagine uh, for a moment that you're in a cycle of always getting sick, always feeling tired so uh, you go to the doctor and explain this long arduous journey you've been on of getting sick of being tired she listens to you and then responds to you saying okay if you want me to help you you have to tell me everything I need to know what your diet is like I need to know what life is like for you at home I need to know what your job is like you have to tell me about, about the personal stresses happening in your life. I need to know if you exercise, if you drink, if you smoke. I need to know everything about your life. 
Now, at that moment, you might turn to her and say, hey, no, wait, wait a minute. You're a doctor. You stick to the physical stuff. I don't want to talk to you about my personal stresses or challenges that I'm facing at work or home. That's not your department. What might she say? I'm sorry. They're all connected. You can't break your life down into departments. Maybe the reason you're getting sick is because there's some emotional strain on you. If you want to get better, I need to know about those things because it's all related. It's all interconnected. Now, in the same way, God says to us, you come to me because you want renewal. You want strength. You want spiritual vitality. You want me in your life. And if you want all those things, then you have to let me talk to you about money. Because money is intimately related to the other things you want. So we're going to have God talk to us about money today. Specifically, we're going to explore the Bible's insistence that it is the mark of a real Christian to be radically generous. It's the mark of a real Christian to be radically generous. Here's what we're going to look at from our passage in front of us, 2 Corinthians 9. We're going to look at the effects of generosity, the catalysts for generosity, and the measure of generosity. The effects of generosity, the catalysts for generosity, and the measure of generosity. First, the effects of generosity. In 2 Corinthians, Paul is raising money for famine relief in Jerusalem. And he articulates there that the, the, their generosity is twofold. On the one hand, people will be physically fed. On the other hand, verses 11 to 13, it will lead people to praise and thank God. In other words, it will lead to worship. So the effects of generosity are twofold. They're both physical and they're spiritual. Human beings are two parts. We are body and we're soul. We are material and immaterial. Now, the only institution in the world that can address both body and soul is the church. There are lots of institutions that take care of people's bodies. They tend to their material needs. But only the church deals with the soul as well. That's why I believe financial investment in the local church is the best investment anyone can make. Yes, human beings have physical needs. But we know, because God made us body and soul, physical and spiritual, every human being has a need to know who they are in the universe. People have a need to know who they are in the universe. Think about it this way. Um, what can botanists tell you about a tomato? They can tell you a lot about a tomato. They can tell you a lot more about tomatoes than I can tell you about tomatoes. But there's only one thing botanists can't tell you about tomatoes. And that's the most important thing. They can tell you everything about a tomato except why. Why the tomato? They can't tell you about that. You see why this is important? Is this tomato a beautiful work of God's creative hand that has a God-ordained purpose in the universe? Or is it just a tomato? See why this is important? About a decade ago, 
couple of Christian sociologists were studying Christianity's rapid rise among the poor in Latin America. They wanted to figure out what it was that was causing the poor in these nations to flock to Christianity. And they discovered two factors. On the one hand, Christians and the churches were doing a great work in tending to the material needs of these people, clothing them, feeding them, and that was influential. But to their surprise, there was a second and even more significant factor. It was a spiritual factor. They were flocking to Christianity because biblical Christianity teaches that whether you're high or low socially, whether you're high or low socially, we're all deeply sinful and flawed. And whether you're high or low socially, we're all equal in dignity and value before God. See, the message they were receiving from their culture was the opposite. Because they were poor, okay, they were low socially, and therefore they were second-class citizens. That is, their value and their dignity was tied to their economic station in life. That's the message they were getting from their culture. But Christianity is coming in and it's telling them, no, your value, your dignity is not contingent on your socioeconomic status. See, generosity was meeting people's meaning needs. It was meeting people's meaning, meaning needs. See, unless you're praising God, unless you're thanking God, unless you're worshiping God, you won't have ultimate meaning in your life and a full stomach just isn't enough. 20 to 30 years after the last apostle died, the apostle John, there was a letter written called the Epistle to Diognetus. The letter is grappling with the cause of Christianity's rapid growth in the empire during the first two centuries. Here's a portion of that letter. Christians are indistinguishable from other men, either by nationality, language, or customs. They do not inhabit separate cities of their own or speak a strange dialect or follow some outlandish way of life. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live in their own countries as though they were only passing through. They play their full role as citizens, but labor under all the disabilities of aliens. Any country can be their homeland, but for them, their homeland, wherever it may be, is a foreign country. Like others, they marry and have children, but they do not expose them. They share their meals, but not their wives. They live in poverty, but enrich many. They are totally destitute, but possess an abundance of everything. There are four basic observations this outsider to Christianity is making. He's saying, first of all, in this group of community of Christians, there's a complete absence of racism. See, Christianity gives you a higher identity than your race. You know you've got a higher identity than your race when you can celebrate the good in other races and you can be critical of the bad in your own. If you can't celebrate the good in other races and you can't be critical of the bad in your own, chances are race is very high for your identity. The early Christians had a higher identity than their race, which is why geography was of little significance to them in their living arrangements. Second, they had a high view of life. They did not kill unwanted babies. Common practice in the Roman Empire at this time was to throw female babies into the river. Abortion, infanticide, they were not practiced by the Christians, and this created a kind of magnetism in the community. Every human life was equally valued. Third, they had an unusual view of sex. 
In the secular Roman Empire, married men were permitted sexual freedom. Women were expected to remain faithful to their husbands, but husbands were not expected to remain faithful to their wives. But the Christians at this time were very different. Married couples remained faithful to each other. And fourth, this outsider to Christianity observes that these Christians were radically generous. They lived with eye-popping generosity. And all of these things contributed, they believe, to Christianity's rapid growth in the Roman Empire at this time. It's the effects of generosity, body and soul, material and immaterial. It feeds people and it meets their meaning needs and only the church does this kind of work. Second, the catalyst to generosity. There are two of them in the text. Creation and redemption. First is creation. Paul speaks to this in verse eight. God, through his providential ordering of your life, gives you everything you need. And then in verse 10, God supplies seed to the sower. So he provides the natural capacities, natural materials needed to prosper us. So the reason you need to give away your wealth is that all the wealth you've got is from God anyway. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Every penny in our collective bank accounts and financial portfolios belongs to God. I realize what the advertisements say. They say, spend this on yourself because you owe it to yourself. You've earned it. You ever notice that about marketing? You've earned it, you owe it to yourself, spend this on yourself. What God says is, Look, here's what he's saying. You've earned it with what? You've earned it with what? Look at all you have. You've earned it with what? God says, you've earned it breathing the air I created and gave you free. You've earned it with the mind that I created and gave you free. You've earned it with the connections that I gave you free. All these are from me. The fact that you were born in this time, in this country, instead of 1,200 years ago in the mountains of Tibet is from me. Everything you've got is a result of my goodness to you. Every single bit of it. I ask you now to share it. I ask you now to share it. See, the mark of a true Christian is they have a completely different attitude towards money and possessions because they know it's all from God. Look, every parent... Every parent's lived through this. They get irked by this aspect to their, to their kids. And, and probably you've all experienced this. You know what I'm talking about? You buy your kid a candy bar and you ask them for just one bite. <laughs> you been there? You ask them for one bite. What do they say? No, it's mine. And you look at them and what do you do? You're kidding, right? You're kidding. I know it's yours. I gave it to you. I'm not taking it back, but come on, just one bite. Just one bite. Suppose somebody gave you a house, a $500,000 home, $500,000 home, and they say to you, there's only one thing. Look at how big it is. Look at how big it is. Look at, it's got all these rooms. Look at how big it is. I would like to have one room to live in, but I'll give you everything else. The whole house is yours. I won't bother you too much. I just would like one little part of it. Now, what would you say? Forget about it, right? Forget about it. Now, look, common sense would say, if that house is the only thing you've got, 
If it's the only thing you've got, apart from it, you have nothing else, common sense would say, it's perfectly, perfectly reasonable to share, say, 10% of it with the person who gave it to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, What do you have that is not a gift? What do you have that's not a gift? Now, the implied answer to that is there's nothing, there's nothing you have that's not a gift. Everything you have is a gift. So the first catalyst for radical generosity is creation, and it would be great if God would pronounce again, let there be light. <laughs> Second catalyst is redemption. Redemption. So Paul's saying creation's a catalyst to generosity, but also redemption is a catalyst to generosity. In fact, here's the way you put this, here's the way you think about this. The way you know you've experienced the grace of God is if you're radically generous. The way you know you've experienced the grace of God is if you're radically generous. In fact, I would go so far as to say, if you need to be commanded to give, if you need to be commanded to give, you've never experienced the grace of God. Charles Spurgeon has a somewhat famous illustration for this. He says, what if you knew you were dying, but I had medicine that would cure you? What if you knew you were dying, but I had medicine that would cure you? Now, the problem is, this medicine is extremely expensive. In order for you to get this, you're going to have to sell your home, sell your cars, you're going to have to sell most of your possessions in order to buy this medicine. What would you say? What would you say? You would say, what good is my home if I don't have this medicine? What good is my home if I don't have this medicine? What good are my possessions if I don't have this medicine? This medicine is so precious to me, it makes all my other stuff, my home, my possessions, all my stuff, it makes them look cheap. The preciousness of that medicine has made everything else in my life expendable. See, for the Christian, the preciousness of Jesus, the preciousness of the gospel makes everything else expendable. The preciousness of the gospel makes money expendable. Now look, do you find radical generosity to be reasonable? If you don't find radical generosity to be reasonable, then don't worry about money for the time being. You need to get the grace of God straight first. Third, the measure of generosity. So how much are we talking about here? Huh? We're Americans. We want to know the bottom line. How much? How much? Well, in the book of Malachi, which is in the Old Testament, God himself is speaking to Israel, and he says to them, a failure to tithe, a failure to give him 10%, is robbing him. God's word's not mine. A failure to tithe is robbing God. Now, in the New Testament, that's the Old Testament, in the New Testament... The idea of, of giving 10%, the tithe kind of just vanishes. After the cross, after the resurrection of Jesus, we don't hear about the tithe anymore. So how much should we give? How much should we give? Well, verse 13 in 2 Corinthians tells us that we should give in accordance with the gospel. It's not helpful, is it? <laughs> in accordance with the gospel. 
How are we supposed to take that? Well, let's back up because let's understand the tithe within the sweep of of the Bible storyline. In the Old Testament, the tithe was giving in accordance with what? In the Old Testament, the tithe was giving in accordance with God's grace. Remember what God had done for Israel? He had formed them as a nation. He had rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He had preserved them in their wanderings. He had provided for a land for them. Time and time again, God had provided for them. So giving 10%, the tithe in the Old Testament, was done in response to this grace of God. Question, have we Christians, New Testament Christians, received more or less of God's grace than Old Testament Israel? If we New Testament Christians received more or less of God's grace than Old Testament Israel, I don't think there's any question about it. I don't think there's any question about it. We've received a whole lot more of God's grace, a whole lot more of his love, a whole lot more of his mercy, a whole lot more of his revelation, a whole lot more of his provision than Old Testament Israel. And giving is to be done in response to this. So, if when you look at 10%, and see that the Bible sees that as a minimum amount, a minimum rule of thumb for how much we should be giving away, a person who's a moralist or a legalist will say, that's ridiculous. But a person who's been touched by the grace of God, who owes everything to Christ, what that person may say is, I'm strapped, I can't do it, I'm too much in debt, I've got obligations, I'm in financial trouble, but that person would never say giving 10% is unreasonable. So you have a pragmatic way to find out if you're a legalist or a real Christian. If giving 10% to the one who's given you everything is unreasonable, you don't know him yet. If it's reasonable, but you don't know how you're going to get there, that's different. That's different. The fact is, some of you can get there. Some of you may say, I can't afford 10%. Well, if you suddenly had a 10% reduction in your income, what would you do? What would you do? You'd make do. You'd make do. You'd figure out a way. You'd be grumpy. You'd be unhappy, but you'd make do. You'd figure out a way, right? Well, why don't you make do now? Make do now. Figure out a way now. But instead of grumpiness and unhappiness, take joy in knowing now you're a philanthropist. Maybe you never thought you could be. If you had a 10% reduction in income, you'd figure out a way to make it work. Well, figure it out now. Knowing that your radical generosity can change the world and have the impact that we've been talking about. Retirees, let me speak to you just for a minute. Retirees, how does this work? I always wondered about that. I always wondered about that. So there was a retiree that I knew really well, so well that I could ask him about these things. And I knew him to be an exceedingly generous man. So I asked him, I said, hey, you're retired. No paycheck coming in. How do you handle the giving thing? Here's what he said. He said, well, 
my living conditions are pretty much the same they are now as they were when I was working. I live in you know, the same kind of home, driving the same kind of cars. I'm able to do the vast majority of things that I was doing when I was working. Said So if my station in life hasn't changed, I'm not going to change my giving. I'm going to keep giving what I was giving when I was working because nothing's changed. That's a well-thought-out reflection. The amount we give, the degree to which we give, should be in accordance with what we believe the value of the gospel is. A professor of mine once said, five minutes into eternity, five minutes into eternity, no one will say, I wish during my life I had kept more for myself. Many will say, I wish I had given him more. Let me leave you with 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. God, you've made us to mirror you to reflect you, to be your image bearers. And you have revealed yourself to be not a hoarding God, but a radically generous God. Make us like you, radically generous in response to all you've given us. Remind us, God, that as we give, you use our generosity to meet people's needs. You use our giving to meet physical needs. You use our giving to meet material needs. You use our giving to meet people's meaning needs. The need to know who they are in the universe and who they can be in Christ. So God, I pray that you would challenge us, stretch us in this area of our lives. For the sake of Christ, we pray these things.